The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, so chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and seeing the multitudes. Okay, Jesus has just started his ministry, and, and remember, he taught, and the first time people heard him, they said, nobody has ever taught like this man. He speaks with power and with authority. And not only did, it's one thing to go and have some guy that's powerful and eloquent and in speech. It's another thing to have it then followed up with miracles and with healings. And I want to, I'm going to tell you this, you know, because a few months ago, the Lord told me to start praying for us, not just me, you know, like alone, but he said, when we as the body begin praying for healing, he said, I will hear and I will answer. And God has been healing people right here in this congregation because he's alive. He is risen. He still heals today. The Holy Spirit is moving. And, and a lady came walking in and she was so excited and she was in tears that the Lord touched me. You know, it's one thing, oh, God's moving. Oh, great. You know, but when it touches you, she goes, I had this knee, and she points at her knee, big old scar. I was, she was in agony and pain and swelling and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we prayed, boom, it's gone. And she, then she wanted to test it. No, it can't be. It just was gone. Like, when I prayed, God healed my knee. She took her husband, dragged him to the mall, walked him all around the mall, you know. So... He's going, Lord, did you have to heal her now? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. She was having fun at the mall, but she was testing her knee out. So anyway, it was uh, God is doing great things. So Jesus begins healing people. So they're going, whoa, it's just gone to another level of reality. Then demons are flying out of people. Who is this guy? Hence the multitudes. He went up on a mountain to deliver the most famous speech of his life. It's like, for America, the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America. This is the Declaration of the Kingdom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So he went up on a mountain. Moses went up on a mountain to receive the covenant of the law. Jesus went up on a mountain to give the covenant of the kingdom. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed which means, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In your notes, I want you to note this. Uh, right there, the first part of your outline, verses 1 through 3. The first word out of the mouth of the king is blessed. Everybody look up here. Say blessed. 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 Point to your neighbor and say, you are blessed. In the name of the Lord. Now listen to this. Being the master teacher, listen carefully to this, because we, we have a lot of teachers here on various levels. Being the master teacher, it is worth noting that Jesus did not begin his first message with a criticism of the scribes and Pharisees, though he would be battling with them for the next three years. But he begins with a positive emphasis of the righteous character of the kingdom of heaven and of the divine blessings that it brings into the life of a believer. 
I want you to try to imagine the crowds where everybody's running to their neighbor. Have you heard about this guy, Yeshua of Nazareth? He came out of nowhere. He's taught like no rabbi has ever taught. Oh, do we have to go to synagogue? No, he's outside, outdoors, walking down the street. You can follow him, hear him. He's up on a mountain. Let's go. Can you imagine the crowd's attention riveted now on this man that they know has power and authority they've never seen, and he utters his first word, blessed or blessed. Now, the Latin word for blessed is beautis, where we get like words like beautiful, but it's also from where we get the word beatitude. Beatitude. These are called, and maybe you have something in your Bible that puts ahead, and my Bible does, right above chapter 5, it says the Beatitudes. What that means is, that's the Latin word, it means the blessings, okay? And what, what are Beatitudes? Attitudes that you and I are to be. In other words, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This was a most powerful word uh, for those who heard Jesus speak it. This particular word means, I'm going to quote it, divine joy and perfect happiness. Divine, not earthly joy, which is awesome, human joy, which is incredible, but divine joy. The word was not even used for human beings because that word was reserved. Only the gods experience that kind of blessedness. And yet, that's the first word Jesus and comes out of his mouth, and he says, you, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, he was grabbing divine, supernatural joy and happiness, bringing it down and exploding through his mouth and giving it to the people who would listen. So I think this is, is beautiful. Jesus not only wants us to hear his words, he wants us to feel the impact of the word. So, to be poor in spirit is to recognize our utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. It literally means not just that you're poor, because we have the poor and we have what we call the working poor. This is a word below that. This is bankrupt. This is nada. I got nothing spiritually. And what does Jesus say? Those who, who have nothing spiritually to offer God, oh, how divinely blessed you are, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the beginning, you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. What he is saying is when we admit that we are lost, when we admit that we are broken, when we admit that we are sinners, when we admit we have no capacity and no way to save ourselves or deliver ourselves, and we cry out, God, have mercy on me, he says, now all of heaven is yours. The entire kingdom is yours. And the wonderful thing is everyone, everyone, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, every nation, kindred, race, and people, everyone can start here. Everyone can be poor in spirit because everyone is poor spiritually. It isn't blessed are the pure, or blessed are the holy, or blessed are the spiritual, or blessed are the wonderful. It is blessed are those who have nothing 
and who cry out to God out of their poverty, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals that to us. And when we come into agreement with Him that we're lost and we're lonely and we're broken and we're in, in sin and, and we're just separated and we cry out, God, have mercy. He loves that. He hears that. He grabs you. He wraps His arms around you and brings you into His heart and salvation. Hallelujah. He's so, so good. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven was a way of saying, for theirs is salvation. It is given thus to the poor. It is given to the despised. It is given to those who are uh, sinners and publicans and, you know, corrupt people and prostitutes and the immoral. It's given to those who are poor and they know they have nothing to offer a holy God. And yet God says, I'm going to reach down. And when you admit the truth, I'm going to pull you up out of that poverty and bankruptcy and darkness and dungeon. I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to bring you into heaven. And I'm, only, I'm going to bring you literally into my family. I'm going to make you my sons. I'm going to make you my daughters. I'm going to share my glory with you. I'm going to bring you into my kingdom as my royal family, a chosen people, a, a, an anointed nation for me. Oh, what a beautiful and precious and wonderful thing it is. So this is the foundation. This is where it begins. When we admit, yes, Lord, save me, have mercy upon me, forgive me, the kingdom of heaven and salvation is yours. Okay, let's go to verse 4. He says, and blessed. Oh, how happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want you to note this. The godly response to poverty of spirit is mourning. By the way, this is the strongest word in the Greek language. Uh, it's used for mourning the dead. It's like if your dad died or your mom died or a brother or a sister died or your spouse or a child, that kind of grieving and mourning. So once you realize you're bankrupt spiritually and you realize your sinful condition, you grieve and mourn over your sins. And the Lord says, oh, how happy are those who mourn their sinful state, for they shall be comforted. Mourning over our sin. I will never forget, and, and all of us have, you all have your story and your testimony. I'd love to say this, that your testimony about coming to the Lord, you are the expert on it. That's all God ever asks us to share with others. Just share your story. Share your testimony. Because I like to say, you are the expert on your own life. You know, there's a lot of people smarter than us, and they know more than us, and they got more degrees, and this and that. But and a lot of experts, in fact, they're always quoting, and the experts say, but you alone are the expert of your own life. Nobody can tell you what you did and where you went or how you felt. No, 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 no. This is my, this is my story. This is what I went through. This is where I was. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is what happened to me. This is what I felt. I'm telling you. You are the, you are the ultimate expert on your own life. And so I remember when I was, you know, 11 years old, I had gone to church when we were like five to seven. I got the basic concept of God and Jesus. But then when I was 11 and I heard as Billy Graham shared the gospel, and, and I, I'm telling you, I got it. I, I was 11, and God used him as the vessel to 
to let me realize, because I, you know, had two brothers, and I was fighting and angry and all kinds of hormone changes going on and angrier and all of this stuff. And then as he began preaching the word, it was like a sword that went into my little 11-year-old heart, and I, I felt bad. I, I got emotional watching a movie about this family that's all got all these problems, ends up at a Billy Graham crusade, there he is preaching, and it just pierced me. You know how when you, in your head, you're, it's like just you, and the, your, your whole life is coming before you, and I, I felt this emotion. I was so sorry for my anger, for my feelings, for my, I understood that I was a sinner, and I began to weep and, and to mourn over that and then was ready to pray and give my heart to the Lord. Blessed, oh, how happy are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. God says, you know, I like it when you mourn your sinfulness, your selfishness, your pride, your arrogance, your self-sufficiency, when you see what it is, and then to realize that's what nailed Jesus to the cross. Not just generally, you know, God loved the world and He died for the sins of the world. The gospel is when it lands to you personally. My sins put Jesus to the cross. My sins drove a spike through His hands. My sins put a spike through His feet and nailed him to the cross. And, and even now, see, this is not just something that we go through one time. I believe that the, the Beatitudes, you kind of, one flows into the other. I know that I'm bankrupt. Oh, God, have mercy. Save me. And then I'm mourning over my sins. And then you go through, we'll get to the end, probably next week. But guess what? In your life, then he starts you all back again. You have a re-experience of your poverty of spirit. You, you will have seasons where you will go through weeping and emotional. It's like a, you know, how, how do you make a good steak? You tenderize it by poking it with a fork with holes. That's a great description of what has happened to my heart over the last whatever many years since I gave my heart to the Lord at 11. God has pierced my heart. You get more tenderized. Your heart gets tenderized. And, and what that allows, it allows the Holy Spirit into every hole, into every crack, into every crevice. You get tenderized by the Holy Spirit. And it's beautiful, and it's a wonderful and a precious thing. Here's another benefit of mourning our, our sinfulness. Those who mourn know something intimate about our Savior, the fellowship. It's called the fellowship of His sufferings. If you've read Philippians chapter 3, you know Paul talks about, and one of the things that I really want is I want the fellowship of his sufferings. What does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus is asking you to get up and be, you know, nailed to a cross, literally. He did that for us. But what it does mean is that I can remember what my sins did to, to nail him to the cross. So I remember, like when we have communion, I remember Jesus and what my sins did to him, and that makes my heart melt. It makes my spirit sensitive and my heart tender, and I weep and I cry, and that's the fellowship of his sufferings. That I can, I can think of Jesus, you're doing this as I'm remembering it and rehearsing it in my mind, and, and Jesus is praying, Father, forgive Ray for he knows not what he does. But he puts your name, and it becomes personal. And then there's a closeness also in our mourning 
over our sinfulness, a closeness to the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Jesus had the perfect tenderized heart. Every sick person, every demon-possessed person, every broken person, every lost person, that, that in all of humanity that Jesus came from heaven and all that he saw, he, he was a man acquainted with sorrow. When you're empathetic, you take on the feelings of others. Have you ever walked into a room and all of a sudden you feel a heaviness and then you see someone and you can tell in their countenance, wow, you feel it. You know what I'm talking about? I think one of the things that would probably be shocking to us, you know, at one glance, if we could go back to the, there's Jesus, oh, let's get up close to him, wow, and you see him and you would see uh, the sadness on his face. Why? Because he lost, he saw all of humanity as sheep without a shepherd. He saw all of their suffering. There, there was just tremendous empathy and compassion and tenderness. And that's why when we mourn, it's like our hearts are being made like the Lord's, being tenderized and becoming acquainted with this Savior who knows our sorrows. Okay, let's go on to the next one, verse 5. I love this one. Blessed or blessed or oh, how happy is another way of saying it, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now here in your notes, I want you to write this down. The surprising meaning of the word meek is not weak. That's what many, I don't know where this idea came from, but you're a Christian. You're supposed to, you know, don't be, you know, uh, this pushy, you know, thing. you're supposed to just kind of be meek. And we interpret meek as just, well, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm just going to not even be here. I want you, yeah, I'll just kind of go stand in the corner. Don't look at me. That's not what the word meek means. Note here, the surprising meaning of the word meek is not weak, but it's actually strength under control. And there are some of you specifically that need to hear this this morning. If you some got the idea that well, I don't want to get too spiritual, because then you got to, you know, be a mealy mouth, weakling, and just get run over by people. That's not what it means. The meek person was not a passive person. And a truly meek person is nobody you want to mess with. A meek person is not able to be pushed around. Listen to this. The main idea of meekness or a meek person is strength, tremendous power, but under control. The image that, that is given for it and that was used by the Greeks is of a large, strong, powerful stallion horse with all of its raw power, strength, muscle, fastness, ability, but that was under control. Not a wild horse that just goes crazy, but it's a, tra it's a horse that has come under the control of just the reins, where you, you take the reins literally in, in a relationship with a horse where the reins just, you, you just move it a little to the side. It feels that little touch of the strap on its neck, and it just starts going this way. And you go to the other side, and that big, strong, powerful horse goes that way. You just give it a, a gentle but firm tug, and it stops. 
You give it a little signal, and it brings all that power under your control to move forward. That is the description of meekness. Power, but it's not wild. It is under control. You know, it's interesting that over the, you know, vast history of the human race, I mean, we haven't had, you know, metal and tanks and stuff like that until recent times. So most of the time when you go to war, uh, the, the instrument of choice for an army is horses. Of all the animal kingdom, many in the animal kingdom, they're, they're scared and they hear noises, they run, they fly, they dig holes, they scatter, they don't like conflict or whatever. What's amazing about horses is in the, in the thick of war, where guys are on top of you yelling and screaming commands, sounding and blaring bugles and trumpets with swords, wearing armor and heaviness, and with that trained horse, it goes not only to the front of the battle, but it doesn't shrink from it. It, it digs in. It's like, let me at him. That's the picture but it's being guided and directed by the reins. So we are to come under, look, when you, Jesus, how many would agree, was not a weakling? He was not somebody to be messed with. He was not somebody to be pushed around. The power of the glory of God was in him. And now he says, oh, how blessed, oh, how happy are the meek. The meek are those who surrender to the moving of the Holy Spirit within them. They yield to his presence and the leading of his voice in their lives. Now, they can get into a situation where they get angry, but rather than just wildly, uncontrollably thrashing around with all their anger, which is what the world does, they are restrained and they are able to communicate their anger or their emotions or their reactions under the leading and the control of the Holy Spirit. Yielding to the Holy Spirit within, they're able to, uh, to suffer wrong without bitterness or a desire for revenge. Um, you know, I, I will just say that, how many, of you, how many of you actually like and enjoy riding horses? Let me see, how many, be bold. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you love, admire, like horses, but are a little scared of them? Anybody? Okay, that's me. So my wife, she loves She's always, let's go horseback riding. And I'm just like, yeah, okay. Uh, I'm scared. One time down in Mexico, we're down there, and we're along the beach, and we're driving along the coast, you know, and, and it's just perfect, picture-perfect day, and the waves are awesome, and there's a couple horses, and there's guys, you know, one. She goes, let's, let's do it. I was like, okay. I'm like, yeah, you So we get out, and she gets this horse, and she's galloping down, and the waves are splashing and going, and I go, I got this, this older horse, he had a suede back, and he just kind of looked at me like. <laughs> so I got on him, I'm, I'm trying not to act scared, and we go down a little bit, and all, he looked back at me, and he just stopped. And the guy was trying to, you know, trying to and he goes, and he's just, I could just see him, he's shaking, nah, I, don't, I don't like this guy. And so he literally knelt down on the ground and started rolling me <laughs> under him like this. And my wife, I'm telling you that, as he goes down, I know what he's doing at the very same moment, and I just turned sideways and walked off and just kept going like this. I said, honey, I'm done. Enjoy. Ride. End of the, end of the movie. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I shared that, but anyway, I'm just telling you, 
Power under control. It's a wonderful thing. But, but listen to this. If you think of it, a real child of God is not, you don't push them around. You don't mess with them because they listen to the Holy Spirit. They're guided by the Holy Spirit. They're strong. They, they are unshakable, unafraid, and you can feel their presence. There's a presence of a man of God, a woman of God who is led by the Lord. They shall inherit the earth. Not, you know, mealy mouth, weak, I'm a doormat, I'm supposed to be a Christian. No, 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 no. The real meek shall inherit the earth. It looks like they would be pushed around, but they shall not be, for they shall inherit the earth. Look at verse 6. We've got two to go. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, how happy are those who have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Write this down, at long last. So once you've gone through these other processes and attitudes, at long last, an entirely new supernatural appetite is ignited for righteousness. As you grow as a child of God, you will actually get to the place, because when you're a young believer, oh, I'm saved, oh, good, I'm, I don't have to be guilty anymore, wow. But you still have the temptations, oh, the world, well, that's still kind of fun, or the flesh, well, that's definitely interesting, and oh, I get, you know, deceived, and, and so you're a young, baby, immature, and you keep going in the washing machine, and finally you reach a point where you're like, you know what, I'm tired of being beat up, I'm tired of being condemned, the devil tempts me to do it, then I do it, then he condemns me and laughs and mocks me, I don't want to walk around with heaviness, I don't want or need this guilt anymore, God, change my appetite that I might desire the things that you desire. Love the things you love, and if I may add, hate the things you hate. That's when you start growing up. You're not a baby anymore. And I'll, I'll admit this, that, you know, here, when I was a little kid, you know, like a lot of kids, I had a sweet tooth. Anybody, you know, had a sweet tooth? You're growing up. I like if it's got some sugar in it. Cool. To me, vegetables was a four-letter word. It was bad. I literally would count how many bean, green beans I got compared to my brothers and complain to my mom. It was like, no, don't give those things to me. But let me just say this. I, I have changed my appetite, and now I love vegetables. I love it when you get some oil, and you just, you know, you, you cook them in a certain way, and it's sweet. And I got to just say, uh, there's nothing wrong with a little real, I'm talking real butter thrown into the mix. Hello, you know what I'm saying? I love vegetables. And I don't want the fake butter, margarine, this and that chemical. I want the real thing. And they've actually, now they tell us butter's good for you. Hello. Praise the Lord. And all those years, butter's okay, it's good, you know, in moderation. So you can change your appetite. They're telling us as a culture, we've had so many, so much fake food. It's not even food. It's not real. Man-made. And then they tell oh, that's not actually very good for you. <laughs> Hello? Our bodies were made for real food that comes from the ground. And, the, and when it's good, ooh, it tastes good. So we have a whole culture battling obesity and weight and issues of self-image and... And, and basically, you put all those diets together, they, they, what they basically say is, you've got to change your appetite from the things that are unhealthy and not good and tearing you down to this which real food can taste good. 
And not only tastes good, but done and educated in a right way, you develop a healthy appetite for what's good for you. Can I hear an amen on that? Well, the same thing in the spiritual realm. You can begin to say, you know what? I hunger for the things of God. I hunger for more of the Spirit. More, I want to surrender more of my life. I choose of my own free will, Lord. I'm not going to be afraid to get more spiritual. Because, and I don't care anymore what people say or what people think. I want, I hunger for God. I hunger for righteousness. I hunger for the things of your spirit. I hunger for your gifts. I hunger for your presence. I hunger for just spending time in the secret place. I love it. I want more light. And here's what Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know what that word filled literally means? It doesn't just mean satisfied. It means they shall be gorged. It means you're going you're gonna to like it, you're going to have an appetite for it, and I'm going to give you more than you can even handle. We're talking not just having a meal, we're talking Thanksgiving. <laughs> because at Thanksgiving, I tell my body, I'm eating more than I need. I'm just letting you know it's not about what I need. I'm eating because I like it, and I'm going to have a lot of it, so I'm gorging this weekend, and I'm not carrying any guilt about it. Hallelujah. Well, the, the same way we can take the same thing with the things of the Spirit. At long last, and man, if I could, I would love to just put this within young people especially. Ask the Lord, you can develop a new supernatural appetite that God will not only fill you, but He will gorge you. And this is a strange filling that both satisfies and yet keeps us looking for more and more and more. Okay, last one, verse 7. Blessed, oh, how happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Just very simply note this. The heart of the Father is a heart of mercy. How many of you are glad that God, our Father, our Abba, our Daddy, is merciful? In fact, do you know what His seat of His throne of the eternal kingdom of God is called. It's called the seat of mercy. His mercies are new morning by morning. There is no one more tender, no one more patient, no one more kind, no more uh, emotionally vulnerable, no one more merciful than Almighty God. And if we want mercy ourselves, we have to be willing to offer mercy to others. And by the way, you could say it's mercy that reveals to us our bankruptcy, our poverty of spirit. It is God's mercy that allows us to feel sad for a sinful attitude, action, or heart. It is the mercy of God that teaches us we can yield to the tremendous presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's a mercy that we begin having this new appetite for the things of God, the things of Jesus, the things of the Holy Spirit and of the glory of the Lord. It is the mercy of God in our lives. And, and so he begins showing his own heart through you to be merciful. May I say, the first one that you need to be merciful to is often yourself. I have found over the years as a, as a pastor, there are too many people that have the wrong, 
twisted image of what it means to be a spiritual Christian, and they almost are hating on themselves, cursing themselves, putting themselves down. It's like, whoa, wait a second. Um, yeah, we're lost and we're broken, but that doesn't take away our… We're extremely precious to God. We're extremely valuable to Him. It, it has nothing to do with our worth. God loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son. You are precious in the eyes of the Lord. So, we receive His mercy, and then we let ourselves experience and enjoy and walk in His mercy, and then we're free to extend that mercy, beginning within our own family, within our spouses, our children, our family, our friends, our workers. Mercy is the sign of the presence of the kingdom of heaven and of the Holy Spirit. The, the world is, is hungry for the spirit of mercy. Why? For they shall obtain mercy. They shall obtain mercy. I want to leave you with this last thought. Why did God show so much mercy to King David? King David is, you know, we think of him, wow, he took out the giant, he took Goliath, he wrote all those songs that became psalms and hymns and in the Bible, and he was the king of Israel. He sang and danced before the Lord. He didn't care who watched him. He was unashamed, unafraid to worship God. But we also think of, oh, man, the man of God king, he murdered a guy. He murdered him. And then he committed adultery openly. The whole nation knew it against his wife and with Bathsheba. And it's very interesting that um, yet God says of all of human history, when he's looking from heaven and he's looking down the earth, he points at David. I mean, we're, we're talking from the beginning to the end of human, and he says, that guy right there, whom God knows is flawed, he's definitely not only not perfect, he was bad. And God says, that man is a man after my heart. Why? Because David was a man of mercy. I believe that God was merciful to David even with the, these egregious, world-known sins because David was a man of mercy. When he was even a young man, and he had the king, Saul, who was jealous of David, angry with David, want to get rid of David, would invite him. You know, when the king invites you to his lunch table, you got to go. So he's sitting there, and then the king picks up a spear, boom, tries to nail David through the head with it, and he runs, and he wants to kill him. And he sends, you know, like uh, SEAL team guys from Israel to go kill David. David keeps winning, escaping, and running, and then he catches Saul. And finally, his own guys that are running scared for their lives, they go, there's Saul. He's in your hands. Take him out. David said, I'm not doing it. I'm not touching Saul. There was some… What was it in David? He goes, I'll not touch the Lord's anointed. I will not harm him. He is the king appointed by God. And quite honestly, I believe that David loved Saul, wished he could have a different relationship, didn't want to take revenge, and he said, I will not throw a spear at him. He honored him. He literally, one time, he had Saul dead to rights, and Saul's like, man, if I had found you like that, I would have nailed your hide and killed you, and you found me, and you didn't, and, and Saul wept. David was a man of mercy. He, he had a merciful heart, and therefore God showed him mercy, and then God said, see that man? David was a good repenter. 
He sinned greatly, but he repented greatly, and God said, that means the world to me, that you would recognize and see it, and you ask me to forgive, and I will forgive you. And then, of all things, the God who could point from anyone that he wanted to in the whole, you know, all the prophets, holy people, and everything else, he says, my son, the king of the kingdom of eternity will sit on the throne of David. He calls it the throne of David. Of all the names given to the Messiah, there are many of them uh, in the Bible. The one that Jesus used about himself really more than any other, even all the way in the book of Revelation is, I am the son of David. Why? David was a man of mercy. He was a merciful man. He reflected the heart of God, the character of God, and that is a great example, model for you and I. Let us be known at the end of our lives, if for anything, he was a merciful man. She was merciful in her heart, and that reflects the heart of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.